we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Hello there and welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez and I have the pleasure of being joined today by a fellow colleague. Now, I can call you a colleague. <laughs> I thought I was one of the newest people here in the building, but I, I think I might have met my match. Uh, Mr. Carl Shallowhorn, thank you so much for being on Buffalo What's Next today. Thanks, Lorenzo. And uh, for the folks at home, uh, Carl is a mental health advocate, an educator, and radio host. You are now uh, one of us. Yes. You're one of us here at WBFO. You're the host of Mindful Music. We'll get into that a little bit later, but the reason I, I reached out to you and knocked on the door adjacent to ours was to hopefully tackle the ever-present demon of, of mental health. Uh, and I say demon because it, it's something still that as we try to, we put these, these, these awareness months, uh, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, it's been that way since 1949. We put these these things in, in action to hopefully address the issue of mental health and and just have those conversations. And I still think we're so far behind. I don't want to downplay the advancements in psychology and 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 mental health, but I just feel as I look around, the stressors and and trauma. You look no further than this past weekend, the one year mark of of the tops shooting. Uh, the stressors keep piling up all around us. So long-winded introduction there, but really uh, what I want to do is hopefully help our audience, help ourselves, because I, I feel like that's this is an exercise that that everyone has to do in their daily lives. You can't you can't ignore mental health. Uh, you can't brush it off to the side. Uh, hopefully, get to a better place for each and every one of us as we as we look back on the on the past year. And, and forward, and also in our, our just general daily lives, how we can get better. I thought that was a lot, wasn't it, Carl? That was a mouthful. <laughs> so where do you want me to begin? Well, first off, how do you feel? Mixed feelings. I have a lot of feelings. If you're talking about specifically the remembrance of 514 and the day, the events that followed, where we're at now, where things appear to be headed, I'm a little bit unhappy. And what I mean by that is that I don't know if things are really transpiring entirely the way that may uh, have been hoped as far as resources and things in the community directly affected by the shooting. Certainly things are changing, but should they have already been changing? Why did it take a tragedy such as what we experienced in our community for these things to be brought to light. Uh, one of the big things we talk about a lot in the world of behavioral health is this term social determinants of health. 
And what that is is really along the lines of access to things like healthcare, education, you know, food, uh, transportation, elemental things, but in the end contributes to our overall well-being. If those things are lacking, then people will suffer. And we have entire zip codes and certainly the area right around tops where that's been the case for a long time, which means that people are not getting the resources. And even after today, where are we at? There's been promises. Mind you, I know it's early in the, in the sense that things are to come, but we need to see some practical change. This question, how do you feel, is, is your, how you open up your, your 2022 TED Talk here at Buffalo. And I, I feel like it wouldn't be right to go anywhere else but start there. Uh, and I think you encompassed a lot of the feelings that I've been feeling as a relative newcomer to, to Buffalo. My wife and I were beginning to start the process of moving to Buffalo right around this time last year. Mm. So it was a lot to receive and, and unpack. And I wasn't even a part of the community yet. Mm. So I can only imagine how it's been for the people of Buffalo. Just as you mentioned, having to have this 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 catalyst event to be really the, the the starting point for some of these conversations that should have been transpiring far before this. I um, want to say that if I just say real quick Lorenzo though, it isn't it isn't all say like I said mixed feelings. I also have a feeling of hope, but also a belief in the solidarity of the black community that showed itself so well. I was at a staff meeting earlier today where one of my colleagues made a great point that I was aware of, but he stressed the fact that amongst all these tragedies that have happened, these mass shootings that are related to, let's say related to those like 514, we're really the only city that didn't have a mass riot or a mass uprising. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were really just, it was mind blowing how much the community coalesced came together, supported each other, loved, I say loved on each other in a way that I never seen before. I mean, it was immediate. I'm talking the next day, it started at Johnny B. Wiley with healthcare providers coming together. Now, mind you, there were some concerns about who was delivering the health, but in the end, people were, it was the attempts that were being made that led to where we're at now. I mean, we have a healthcare provider Better healthcare provider that has programming right on Jefferson Avenue. There's Buffalo Urban League is doing things right on mm -hmm. Jefferson Avenue, right in the core of where this happened. So there has been some good come of it. So I'm, it's not all bad. There's some good things. I'm glad you brought that up because when dealing with with mental health issues, you got to look at the duality of everything, the good and the bad. You can't discuss the bad without the good. And 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 that to me, like I mentioned, I I, I gave my personal experience. Uh, you got to do that in, in, when, when talking about the psyche. You have to open up and, and share your own experiences, I feel like. That was something I saw also as well. As a, as a, once again, as an outsider looking in, you saw riots after, after George Floyd. You saw riots in, in um, Minneapolis. You saw, you saw a, a very angry and, and probably the right response um, everyone deals with, with grief in, in their own different way, and communities deal with that in their own way. I was encouraged by what I saw from Buffalo. I still am. 
I still continue to be. Everything after this weekend and on uh, still makes me believe that we have to be headed in the right direction. I think part of part of uh, the human experience is is hoping and understanding that that there's got to be a better better tomorrow, right? Because if not, then then why are we doing this crazy thing? Well, I know I know for myself, I've been working in the area of behavioral health and educating and advocating for a long time, and I think to myself. Yeah, I sometimes ask myself, why do I do this? Well, I know I do what I do because I have to have hope, certainly for future generations. My my day gig, as we say, is I'm the director of youth programs at Mental Health Advocates of West New York. I supervise a team of young people, youth peer advocates that go into schools. They provide services to youth. And what I've learned through this experience is that our youth are hurting. Our kids are hurting. They're traumatized like I certainly never could have imagined, and I'm sure you probably couldn't either. And, and it's just a matter of what they're being exposed to through all kinds of means. But you talk about going back to something like 514. We had our staff go into Bennett High School and performing arts. I remember vividly. They were going in. I had a special meeting of my staff. Okay, how are you going to handle this when you go on to meet with these students? And we had to make sure that when they went in, they had what we call like a trauma-informed approach. So they understood where the students were coming. But in the same respect, there are a lot of young people, students that didn't want to leave home and deserve it, rightly so. They didn't want to go anywhere because they were afraid. So my team goes in and works with youth on a lot of levels to educate, to help them manage and understand their mental health so they can withstand the the stress and the pressure associated with growing up in this day and age. There's a lot to unpack there. Oh, totally. <laughs> because not only do we have this this outlier event, I, I'd like to, I'd like to think it's still an outlier. I know that the frequency of, of mass shootings has increased dramatically, but it's still in my mind an outlier. We want it to be and remain an outlier, despite its its abundance in our in our day to day. But you add to that just the struggles of being. A, a child, being a, a being an adolescent, growing up, being a minority in today's society, then everything else. This generation now is going to have such an, an abundance of stress and trauma, and they haven't even hit 18. Mm-hmm. We had the pandemic, uh, quarantine, uh, schooling. Um, where are the mental wins for children? What are the places where we can reinforce or, or supplement positively, given all these other factors that are just bearing down on them? The expression that comes to mind, it takes a village to raise a child. So there are a lot of people in a lot of different sectors of our community that are doing the work. We have schools certainly are doing things that they've never done before, whether it be providing youth mental first aid training. We've been doing it. We just offered youth mental first aid training for Niagara Falls schools. It teaches the teachers and, and staff how to respond and know what to do uh, and help a student. There are behavioral providers, community-based providers, going into schools, providing on-site help. to Because let me just say this too, Lorenzo. Back when I was a student, back in the day, we had they called guidance counselors. They're not even called that anymore because really they provide different resources and information that – Traditional counseling is not, that's not really what they do much. They, mind you, they might provide that help, but they're not the ones that are primarily, I would say, at least in, in some cases, not the front line. 
Mind you, that's where they utilize the services that are coming in from, say, everywhere from Best Self, Horizon, Endeavor, Spectrum, you know, all these providers coming in to help. We also have other sports. There is Connect, which is a local community-based organization. Um, you know, uh, Jessica Bauer-Walker, is, it's a community-based approach to student wellness. We have other organizations, PTOs. We have Girl Scouts. We're going to be doing training for Girl Scouts. We have a lot of work at the uh, Youth Metal Peer Advocates, rather, will be doing this summer. Uh, Cradle Beach will be working with uh, you know, the Girls Sports Foundation. A lot of organizations where we come into and provide information for these young people to help them develop resilience, to help them be educated. And also a cool thing we're doing, and I'm going to give a little plug for something that's going to be coming down the road, is the MHA is in the process of developing a warm text line for youth. Ah. So we know there's crisis lines, mm -hmm. they're 988. So if anybody is at risk of their life in terms of taking the life or suicide, 988. We'll be providing information. We're working, developing this right now where a youth, say 12 to 18 roughly we're saying, can text this number, not call, text, because mm -hmm. that's the you know how youth do these things these days, to reach someone to communicate if they need someone to say, not necessarily in a crisis situation, but need someone to connect with. Because many times we know that youth may not feel comfortable going to even their friend or family member or teacher. They might want to talk to someone, but they might want to reach out to someone if it's a peer. That's also another thing, too. I mean, my YPAs are 18. You could be 18 to 30. You're younger. I couldn't pull it off. I decided a long time ago I'm not that person to go and talk to a group of high school students or even younger because that's just not my generation. They don't look at me the same as someone like that. Carl, you're not that You're not that. Far older than I am, or far well, removed, because the, there were guidance counselors when I was growing up. You don't know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I I love that because Generation Z is a lot to figure out. I'm a, I'm I'm I guess what I'm called a uh, geriatric millennial. Uh, that that very flattering <laughs> term. Uh, so even I can't. There's a whole lot to just try to understand from Generation Z and and beyond. Whatever comes next. I want to also give a shout out. To, I'm the vice chair of the Mental Health Association of New York State. We're a statewide board. We are the, well, it's the state, Mahaney's, as it's otherwise known as, is the state affiliate for MHA, where I work, part of the Mental Health America Network. Mahaney's, we helped introduce legislation, the first in the country, for mental health education law, to law to be placed so that students, grades, grades kindergarten through 12, are taught mental health in schools, first in the country. And this was in 2017. Um, and other states have followed. I know Virginia is another state that does it and, and a few others. But this should be in every state. It shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a no, you can do it if you want to. Right. It should be required. And there isn't enough of that. And I think what we've learned is, so Mahaney's has been fortunately able to get funding to create, it's called the School Education Resource Center, which is a free service for schools to get resources, information. They have webinars for teachers, families, all kinds of things to help support students in a way that was never done before. It's This is the inspiring part. This is the, the positives that I, I, I say earlier you have to look for. I First off, I, I give you a great deal of respect and credit because uh, one of the things I found out in my research, uh, you struggled with bipolar disorder. My father did as well. Mm. Does still. Uh, 
do so. And his generation is one, he's an 80-year-old man mm-hmm. from Cuba, mm-hmm. uh, also the Hispanic culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, it's not a, a machismo thing to, to get into your feelings, as, a, as, the, as the Generation Z kids right. say. Uh, but it's, it's so important, so imperative. I want to get into, the, into a little bit about the nuances to mental health in, in minority population, but we don't do enough to open up the, the lines of communication when it comes to mental health. And it's amazing, and like I mentioned, empowering and, and uplifting that you're doing this work with, with the youth because I didn't... I always said that it couldn't get worse than Columbine. That was mm. the big one mm. in my lifetime as a student. And now these kids are, are, are dealing with this on a almost listen, monthly basis. Listen, Lorenzo, a week after 514, we had Uvalde. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I'm getting chills right now. I cannot. Ten days the, after. I, I, can't, I still can't get over what that must have been like. I... I'm speechless almost when I think about how our youth these days are being said, okay, um, we're going to be having a lockdown drill. Mm-hmm. You're already setting up in their minds. This fight or flight. Right. Constantly. Right. And that's not healthy. And you're kind of kind of creating this sense of hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I remember once my daughter, my younger daughter was at school, and I think actually it was she was – she wasn't at school at the time. I think she had already come home, but there was a bomb threat. And, of course, my wife and I freaked out. But luckily, she was okay. But I think about these days where, and, of course, right around a certain time, I think when um, uh, one of the recent <laughs> mass shootings, unfortunately, there were some copycat calls to mm-hmm. districts. It's, it's, just, it's just unfathomable how these things are happening to our children that – it does affect them. It does affect their development. It does affect how they see the world. Yeah. So if you're in a world where you're under constant threat or you feel that you can't go to school without being safe, what does that, what does that do for your well-being? And how well can you learn? Right. How well can you perform? How well can you do anything? I want to just emphasize, though, because I come from a 12-step philosophy. I belong to a 12-step program. And the, one of the things we say is, we live in the solution, not the problem. So that's mm-hmm. why the work that's being done in the schools by the behavioral health providers, by MOIPs, by the community-based organizations that are working with our children, Urban League, all these others that are doing this great work to support our youth, that's, that is the future, and that is what we need to invest in. We had Governor Hochul just throw us $5 billion dollars. And I say throw us she, in, a, in a great way. It's a great, phenomenal thing. What are we going to do with the money? money? And the schools mm-hmm. are getting some of that. But it needs to be used wisely. And we talk about appropriations and where it's going to go. We need to make sure that it's being accounted for. We need to make sure that people are following the, the, the money to know that, hey, we're using this in a way that's constructive, productive, and it's going to do what's intended. And I do, I do believe the governor is – she is certainly right on. I think the idea of investing in mental health is so important. It's, it's incredible. I just think, though, as an advocate myself, especially working with Mahaney's, one thing I've learned in my 10 years with the organization is that 
You have to stay in front of people. You have to keep at them. You have to keep at all legislators. Can I give you a quick antidote? Sure. Please so do. we, I took my team of youth for advocates to Albany for the Mahaney's Medical Matters Day. There was eight of us all together. We paired up and went to visit legislative aides. So we went to, I'll just say, uh, one of my team members, Renat and I, we went to see a couple of the aides from um, uh, Crystal Peace Stokes and Tim Kennedy. Some others went to others. So to the YPAs, as they're called, went to Patrick Gallivan's office. One of the things as advocates we were pushing for was an 8.5% cost of living adjustment for healthcare workers in the behavioral health field. Mm -hmm. Didn't get that. But as a result of the YPAs going and advocating before the budget was passed, Senator Gallivan signed a letter in favor of this 8.5% cost of living adjustment. And stated specifically is because of the visit from Josh Chulo and Jim McDowell, the two IPAs have visited and talked to his aide. That, that basically, that's why he, I saw how it was brought to his attention. This is important. He, in other words, he believed that because these two young people advocated. And I stress them all the time, anybody can be an advocate. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that people think, well, what can I do? Well, you can write a letter. You can talk to the legislator. You can make noise. Because if you think about it, uh, certainly uh, it, it's been said, yeah, just make, make good trouble, good trouble. And, and that's what we're doing. We're trying to make good trouble with, with the idea of getting the word out to people and letting them know that these, these legislators, these, these people in power, that, hey, we're not just going to just let you do things. We're democratic. We're, we're supposed to be a democratic society. It's supposed to be bottom up, not top down. Mm -hmm. At least that's the time. That's you know. But we're, that's what I was told. That's what I was told. That's how I grew. But people, people, I think question that. So, but I think, for instance, the mental health education law. That's how that happened. People made a lot of noise, letters, emails, all that. So the more we do that, that's how you affect change. Because we realize that those who are, say, trying to remain where they are, have to listen to their constituents. And so if you are, of course, my area is behavioral health. So that's why we are always trying to use what we do as a focal point to try to impress upon the leaders on policy and all those things that make a difference. I'm speaking with Mr. Carl Schallerhorn, a mental health advocate, director of, of youth programs for Mental Health Advocates of Western New York, fellow colleague here at WBFO, host of, of Mindful Music, Saturdays, 4 to 5 on WBFO, on this very station. <laughs> but um, I wanted to go back to something and as we deal with a, a racially charged incident such as 514 and, and some of the many others that, that we've seen, the barriers that stand between minorities and mental health wellness. I kind of touched upon it with, with the stigma of, of an older generation, but it's much more than that, I feel like. It's, it's, a, it's a cultural thing that's almost inherently learned. Or uh, You brought up in, in one of your conversations the, the post-traumatic slave syndrome that Dr. Joy grew, uh, which is seen prevalent in, in African-American men. How, how is that something that we can divorce from? How can we help black men and women to, to kind of just get away from, from that? You're not going to get away from it. It's, it's, it's American history. I mean, you can't get away from the reality of the Middle Passage. You can't get away from the fact that Africans were literally chained, brought on ships to this country, 
in deplorable conditions, risking their basically putting you know their lives at risk, and then enslaved, literally enslaved, in a way that is something that is beyond inhumane. And so you're talking about, um, and I'll just say a, a society that was started based on that ruling system of, I'll just say, white supremacy. That's really what it boils down to. It was, you had, you, had, you know, I'll just, you had the Euro, you know, centric or white, uh, you know, ruling class. And then, but also, there's also Native Americans, mm -hmm. the, the indigenous cultures. So what happened, though, was with African Americans, you have this history that really is ingrained. And I think over time, people are conditioned to respond certain ways. And if you think about how we have, say, um, just just how people are living in terms of just where uh, they feel safe or not safe, uh, you know, one of the big terms now has, in recent years has been implicit bias. I mean, all these, all these fancy terms, but really it comes down to discrimination. It comes down to, uh, you know, mistreatment of others it comes down to simple lack of opportunity a lot of things have happened over the years which have provided for a sense of inequity and you know one of my recent guests was uh pastor george nicholas that'll be coming up uh you know but um uh pastor george nicholas talked a lot about this this idea of equity how it, it's just it isn't present it isn't there in the way that perhaps uh, we could really try to live up to be. And I think it's going to take really – so I get back to your first question. I don't think it's going to divorce, you could say, because you can't, you can't erase the past. Right. right? And Even I think though lot, some are trying to. Well, I would say that. A lot of people are trying to do that right now, and that is, that's a big part of the issue right now. And I'll just say, frankly, I think a lot of people are just afraid of losing control, losing power. I mean, this is my personal, this is not MHA, this is no, you know, Carl Shalhorn's personal opinion, but I think a lot of people are just afraid of losing um, you know, uh, the power over you know, what is you know, here in the States. Just by demographics. I mean, you're a person of, of Cuban descent. Um, you've got the fastest rising Latino population, as fastest rising in this country. So there's a shift that's happening that some people aren't happy about that, frankly, is... So whether it be the African-American community, the Latino community, others that are really in a place now of perhaps moving into these positions where uh, just by sheer numbers, um, there, I think there's some fear of that. So when you think about the African-American community and how it's moving forward, I, I believe that there needs to be a sense of unity, which I think is there. I think I think that's there. I think that there are plenty of people who are who are working hard to advance the cause behind uh, you know this advancement the of, of making people know where the needs are, where the resources need to go. And my apologies for grossly wording that, but I I think we 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 got to the point that I wanted to get to was is how do we move forward together understanding that that's a that's a innate trauma that that's that's with the black community and, and will never leave the black community uh, I, I do think we're, we're we're getting to a better place there but it's that 
it's that struggle for power though that that's always going to be tugging back and and I don't know how we're going to enlighten everybody else to that to that but we have future generations for that so that's why cuz like I said as you said yourself this this the the younger generation there's there's things going on if you talk to young people mind I know there's always going to be different groups and so forth but there's a lot going on in this younger generation that even I think people like myself don't understand. I, t- I have two children, mm-hmm. 27, 24, who are certainly plugged in with where things are. And even amongst their peers, not even necessarily their direct peer group, but they're just, they're just, they just look at things differently. And that gives me hope that, hey, maybe, you know, maybe we aren't lost. And I think every generation is trying to improve on the one before. I really believe that. And I think I look at this next generation of young people that I work with and I know personally, my family and others that are trying to say, hey, you know what? We can take this and make it better, but it's gonna take coming together. And I do see spaces where this is happening. Uh, For instance, if you look at even the LGBTQ plus community, there is movement to try to coalesce and come together to advance uh, the cause there. So I think there's a lot of things happening at the same time that it's just you know, where do you focus? And as far as the youth and and mental health really are trying to figure things out on their own, one of the things that I, that I love reading up about you, the Buffalo Center for Health Equity, African American Health Equity Task Force, which you've been a part of in the past, mental health to not your teachers or, or counselors, not the, the usual suspects, but rather barbers, mm-hmm. mentors, uh, coaches in the community, reaching and educating individuals that have that connection on a, on a daily basis, that unfiltered connection with the youth. Can you give me a little bit more of the initiatives that the task force has done with, with those, those segments of the population? Sure. Well, like I said, there's a lot of things going on. Certainly, you talk about mentoring, I think is one of the most effective means of changing a person's life. That one-on-one connection relationship that can basically steer someone in a direction of being able to find not only a positive role model, but someone who can guide and show, say, this, this, is, this is a path that you can take that you may not have thought was possible. Uh, of course, we know there's an idea of, of we call it the, bu- uh, the school to prison pipeline. And there's this, this reality that, that many uh, you know, young people, African-American people, young men, that say if they have so many absences or don't graduate, there's a much higher chance of being imprisoned. I mean, that's reality. But there are programs, uh, Breaking Barriers is a local program that's operated through Say Yes. They're the programs for mentoring and, and tutelage and support to help young men, uh, and I'm talking about young specifically, young black men, that will empower them and let them know there is an opportunity. I know there are local fraternities to do things like that. There are, and you talk about things like barbershops. We're working on, on some things in that area that, that we hope to be getting going. Uh, and. So, but the idea though is that if you if you go to where folks are instead of expecting them to come to you, that makes a difference. And this is where it's happening, right? It's happening in the barbershops, in the salons. It's happening certainly in in the stores 
it's happening like to, like said to, like tops that's a community center that's where people meet and and get together so if we could do things on that level that's why as i said that's why there are new providers on jefferson avenue the buffalo urban league and and best self they have sites on jefferson now that are right there and so they're easier to access. I mean, access is a huge thing, too. So being able to give youth this ability makes a big difference. We'll continue our conversation with Carl Shallowhorn on Buffalo What's Next after this. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Once again, I'm having a a riveting conversation with Carl Shallowhorn, a mental health advocate, uh, host of Mindful Music, director of youth programs for mental health advocates of Western New York, and just trying to delve into the communal psyche here. Um, not that we're, we're going to crack it successfully, but a year le- removed from May 14th, 2022, how do how do we even begin to address the trauma that's still lingering on both a micro individual level and a macro communal level? How do we how do we individually or as a society start to unravel that? That's that's a hard one to answer, because trauma is different for everybody. That's that's a well known fact, and so everybody that has gone through that, whether it be whether they be right there at the start of the time, or in that neighborhood, or who heard it from a friend, who saw it in the news, and and the list goes on, even across the country, experiences it differently. That's how trauma is. So there needs to be a way to promote uh, a healing for folks that is, as I said, accessible, culturally uh, aware, and is something that people are willing to approach. Uh, For years, we know that there's been a lack of behavioral health care providers. If you talk about percentages, if we're talking minuscule numbers, but I think two percent of psychiatrists in the country are, are, are African American or are black. Uh, you know, two percent of psychologists, four wow. percent of so the numbers are very small compared to the actual uh, you know percentage of of, of of people of color in the country. So that's the first place to start. And I know there are initiatives to promote uh, or at least uh, attract and recruit mm-hmm. young people of color into these fields. So that's a big part of it. We also need to just educate why it's important for young people to go into these fields. And I think, if anything, it needs to be done in a way that we destigmatize mental health in the black community. It kind of leads into what you were saying before about the trauma that's experienced over the years. There's also stigma, which is a significant factor in anyone getting help. So we need to eliminate the stigma. And I talk about stigma in the black community because there's always, not, well, not always, there's was for a long time, it still is in some respects, 
this feeling of, as you said, weakness. If you go get help, you're weak, or it's a white people thing. We don't do that. We don't do counseling. Uh, or the fact that, oh, that person's just, they're just off or they're crazy or just, you know, just don't, you know, we'll just, we'll just kind of keep them, keep them away. And so there's that stigma that affects people so that even if they may want help, they're afraid to admit to it because of what other people might say. But those barriers even start to break down. When you have, and I'll go back to again, when you have providers right there in the community offering support, I'll tell you something. I gave another shout out uh, to Buffalo Urban League, uh, my friend Melissa Archer, Chief Operating Officer, mm -hmm. Melissa Spikes Archer, uh, Chief Operating Officer, who I've known for several years. She was the director of the, the project through New York State, Project Hope, which became Buffalo Hope. Then she was uh, promoted to Chief Operating Officer. But when they were already in place before 514. They're already providing service because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And then 514, ha 514 happened. She immediately mobilized her team. We were, we were, they were co-locating on, on the floor of our building. They took, she took their team, her team, and went immediately out. We didn't even see them. It's like, <laughs> where, 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 did, where did Melissa go? She was out there every day. And so that's what's happening. And we do have organizations doing things like that, all kinds of organizations that are doing things to change the perceptions, to let people know it's okay, and that there is hope. So would you say it's availability? Besides socioeconomic barriers, it's, it's just having the resources there. It's huge. I can't tell you how important it is. First of all, there's also the idea of, of just simple infrastructure transportation. Hmm. As you know, have, being a new Buffalonian, yep. Buffalo is not the easiest place to get around by public transit. We're not New York City. We're not D.C. You know, we're not Chicago. So we have to deal with this fact that people can't get to where they need to be easily. That's another reason why the whole dilemma when the massacre happened at Tops, people need to get their food. Mm -hmm. They had to have shuttles. I mean, there was there's sort of this idea that it's just not so easy to get to where you need to be. So even if you want to access care and you don't have a car, Remember, Buffalo is the third poorest city in the country. A lot of people don't have cars. How do you get to where you need to be? Well, there's public transit, or you could you could take an Uber Lyft. That costs money. It's right. all these variables that affect how people get the care. So if it's right there, it, it's a lot easier to access. So access is huge. Also, the ability to pay. That's another factor. If you are working and your job doesn't provide the proper benefits – then you can't even afford the health care, whether it be physical health care, mental care, that you might need to support you and your family. And these are the kind of things that force people into decisions. Do I pay for my lights? Do I pay for my gas in my car to get to work? Right. You know, or do I – so what do I give up to get to what I need? So they have to make those hard choices because of this. Going back to the youth – the, the, the future of tomorrow, you can't, we were joking earlier, right before the, our conversation, our interview today, uh, about social media. And I, I, you can't say those words to me without invoking a little bit of fear because now myself as a father of two young girls, I have, I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old. Mm. And I can only imagine, this is now, mm. what's going to be the future in 10, 15 years when they're Give it 10 age. years. <laughs> Where they're of age to, to, to 
experience, whatever social media, whatever, whatever permutation variation of, of social media is then I can only imagine and fear for that day. But let's talk about today. Right. We, we, we talk about the, just the ever mounting uh, pressures that you and I faced when we were kids. And now it's, I feel like it's tenfold with today's children because of social media you used to be able to get out of, out of school at three, four, and that's it. You didn't have to, you could kind of turn off from your world at school. But now social media is this other new realm where it follows you, it 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 hounds you, it keeps reminding you not only just all the negativity that's out in the world. Yeah, it's just an abundance of of, of stimuli and 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 unfortunately negative stimuli. Yeah, how can we as parents or just members of, of the society that we live in uh, help help uh, teenagers and and younger children? navigate that that minefield you said what it is it's a minefield i'm giving you a i'm giving a lot of hard questions to break down here but well and and i'll tell you this too i mean as much as i do this work i ask myself these same questions because i've been asked them before the interesting thing is that i know from even from the team that i work with and what they do is that right it is ever present we talk about bullying it's cyberbullying now right uh it's all these things that we never faced. So how do you combat that if you have young children? I mean, obviously monitoring is one thing, but you can't monitor two o'clock in the morning when, you know, I mean, you could take the devices away. You can, there's things you could do, but kids are smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, they figure ways, you know, workarounds. Why do you think there's TikTok? Why do you think there's, there's always going to be the next advent of whatever that social media platform is to get ahead of what us old folks are doing. Because it was Facebook, then it's Instagram, now it's TikTok, Snapchat, Snapchat. Snapchat. I was gonna say Snapchat, <laughs> Snapchat, because my, all that, all that. So what do you do? I think for me personally, being the father, I'll say as a father of two girls, two you know, adult <laughs> daughters, mind you, they didn't have social media like that. But in the end, I've learned, and I have to give my wife a lot of credit, is the piece about communication, the piece about willing to have those difficult conversations. Um, I'll be honest. I remember, I'll tell you a true story. My daughter, now mind you, I'm a person long-term recovered from addiction. I struggled with drugs for many years. And one day I was driving my daughter to a sleepover at a friend's house. She might've been like maybe 14 or 15. Now she knew I was in 12-step recovery. She, it wasn't a secret. I, she knew I went to meetings, all that. But I was driving to a friend's house. And I said, because I knew, and I knew, 14, 15, 16, whatever age. I said, that's myself. I'm thinking, okay, that's when these things, 14 to 24 is that when these things begin uh, in terms of, of these disorders. So I said to her, her name is Sarah. I said, well, Sarah, you know, there's this thing called genetic predisposition. Have you heard of that? And no, what's that? So I said, well, you know, it's kind of like when it runs in families and a person's at risk if they have a loved one that might have this condition. It could be a parent. It could be a grandparent. I was just trying to say in a way that she could understand. Mind you, she's 50. She could understand. She was a pretty smart kid. Um, what that means. Uh, also, the bipolar story. I was running on my treadmill uh, and she comes out. She was with her routine at the time. And I had a BP bipolar magazine on the table. She goes, Dad, are you bipolar? And I said, well, yeah. She goes, well, I said, why do you ask? She goes, well, that magazine. We Also, we never kept it a secret. Now, mind you, That's good. It wasn't like I was, I wasn't doing what I do now. It wasn't public, but also within the household, it was normalized. Mm-hmm. And that was huge. 
So in other words, my children grow up understanding that mental health is not something to, A, be ashamed of, B, you can talk about, and it didn't have to be me. It, you know, my wife, fortunately, I'm married. I'm, I'm privileged in that respect. I know there's a lot of single parents, but whoever, just we have a program through MHA called Just Tell One, and that's tied into the text line I was telling you about. So Just Tell One is a program, JustTellOne.org, where youth can understand how to talk and find a trusted adult to talk to if they're struggling. So what we're talking about here is relationship building. So giving our children the ability to develop relationships with at least a trusted one trusted adult. It may be the parent, it might be a coach, a teacher, whoever, that they can go to if they find themselves struggling so that they get the help they need. That's where we're talking. So I'm kind of going off the topic of social media, but going back to how it all ties in. So, but but we're using social media for that way. So it isn't a bad thing. I saw something with uh, Sanjay Gupta from CNN. Mm -hmm. And he had a, I think it was one of these things he did with his kids, a podcast, whatever. And he talked to his kids about it. He has teenagers. And they're like, dad, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not. That's, that's it's, the ugly truth. It's like the it's like the what the genie out of the bottle, yep. right? So so what do you do with that? Well, you have to find the practical approaches. But I really believe firmly myself, it starts with communication. You have to talk to your kids. You have to have those difficult conversations. And you know what? Driving around in a car, I found is the best way to have that conversation because they can't run away. <laughs> they can't, they can't tune you out. And that's what I've done. Yeah. It goes hand in hand with all, all these topics that we that we discuss. It's just it comes down to having the one to one with another individual. I appreciate the the one to one that we've been having here mm. uh, because I learn something new in every in every interview that I have. But I hope uh, our audience is is doing the same as well. Another place you can learn a lot. I would be a bad teammate <laughs> if I didn't bring this up. Mindful music Saturdays four to five here on WBFO. How are you enjoying the gig? How's how's that been going? Uh, I'll say, first of all, it's a dream come true. I graduated from Buffalo State with my broadcasting degree in 1987. I'm finally getting a chance to professionally hey. do this. I've done other things before, but not. <laughs> but I'll say this. So it is a lifelong dream. I mean, to be able to take what I love, music, and I also love mental health and doing a nice mashup, to use another musical term, is a dream come true. I get a chance to talk to my guests about music, about what they listen to, but also about how mental health is part of their lives and how they work together. I've had some great conversations so far. There's going to be some great interviews to come up that I know people will be excited about. It's a show described as a program that explores the intersection between mental health and music. It's a, it's, you need that decompression. You need that de- detachment. You talk about social media. My wife always gets on me because my quote-unquote detachment is – I'll start doom scrolling. Doom scrolling. Did you know there's a song? Wait, there's a song. There's a band I love out of Toronto called Metric. They're coming to Rapids Theater, a little plug, on July 2nd. I'm going, but they have a song called Doom Scrolling. Doom scrolling. Yeah, look it up. Look it up. Doom and is metric. it is it uplifting or is it? Oh, as, it's it's it's, it's kind of like what, what, just, what, what genre is it again? They're like a almost like Blondie because Emily Haynes is I the lead singer. Blondie. But anyway, edgy. They're edgy. Okay, edgy. So that's a good segue into this <laughs> on on mindful music. You bring up. With your guests, some songs mm. that they kind of that they kind of go to to kind of summarize their their emotions, their feelings, songs they they escape to. Right now, I know it's a it's it's a very emotionally charged moment in in our in our local time here. But what are the songs that 
you're going to. I listen to a lot of Kate Bush. Mm. A huge she fan. had a huge resurgence now recently. With well, the listen, I was I said I got turned to Kate Bush through the early days, the first days of MTV in 1982. I've been a huge fan for a long time. I listened to Rush is another big fan, mm. uh, fan of it. This morning, I so what I've been doing is on my Instagram posting what I call the Mindful Music LP feature, either the morning or the evening. But I posted a, a picture of my Black Uhuru album. Black Uhuru was the first reggae group to win a Grammy. Uh, and so I listen to all kinds of genres. For me, music is always present. Whenever I'm not around people, I'm probably listening to music, either with my AirPods or in my car or at home with my stereo. With vinyl. I collect vinyl records, all that. And But I guess one of the songs I've been listening to a lot recently is, and I even said this even when I talked about this one, was Uneventful Days by Beck. I started listening to that, that song, particularly at the beginning of COVID, and it just really... It's just just lyrically, it just it just speaks about how when COVID hit, it's like the world stopped. You know, so it didn't seem almost like uneventful days. At the same time, things were happening. So it's just for me, it just whatever is turning me on. I I love craft work. I love soul. I lo- I mean, I've gotten into opera recently. Opera is my latest thing. Uh, so the Met out of New York City does these uh, Met Live HD mm-hmm. performances in theaters. That's what I saw The Champion, which is a phenomenal opera uh, scored by Terrence Blanchard, the jazz uh, trumpeter, about Emil Griffith, who was a real-life boxer who lived a life, a uh, closeted life, as a bisexual male who killed someone in the ring. Imagine an opera around that. But wow. it's a, it's allowing, in fact, unique... Uh, uh, I think Sagrin, uh, the, the conductor of the opera, uh, met was on 60 Minutes and talked about his experience and, and making opera accessible to people that otherwise would not be you know, into it. So that's something I've been getting into recently, believe it or not. I never thought I'd be in opera, but I love it. I, I, I didn't even know that... Uh... I didn't even know the, the the first reggae group to win an, uh, to win a Grammy. You just it was Black Uhuru. Black Uhuru. They are so Sly Robbie, Sly Dunbar, Robbie Shakespeare, great producer. Robbie Shakespeare unfortunately died uh, like about a year ago, uh, but they're reggae producers, drum and bass, dub music. I used to be a reggae DJ at Buffalo's only ever reggae bar called Root Boys really? Roots Rock Cafe. There is a Still root, around? Yeah, well, no, but there's a Root Boys Roots Rock Cafe reunion on June 15th at Mohawk Place. And my friend Dan Page is going to be one of the DJs. Eight o'clock. See, I got to I gotta get into the Buffalo music scene. I know, I mean, I-, I Hook I up with the, me, Dan. I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. I, we're going to stick together because <laughs> my limited Buffalo knowledge of, of the Buffalo music scene is Rick James, is uh, the Goo Goo Dolls. So Sportsman Tavern- Dwayne Hall will be one of my guests coming up. So you got to go to Sportsman Tavern. They have a lot of great music coming through there, almost pretty much every day. So it's a local great venue. It's not expensive. Damone Jackson I'll come. My good friend George Paleo plays Central Park Grill, CPG on Main Street. Every Tuesday night, five bucks, cover. What? Plus you get the best wings. Well, they're all good well, wings. Well, right everyone. Everyone's good. But seriously, five bucks, <laughs> cover, to see an amazing group play for nearly two hours. And Carl, the other the other question, not music. Besides music, obviously music is the getaway. <laughs> Where else do you go to decompress, to detach, to to relieve some of the stress that that we just can't <laughs> we are surrounded by? I ride my bike. 
I cycle. And right there with you. I've been cycling for years. I used to be a runner, mm-hmm. but then my the knees. Yeah, no, my back. I had oh. I had a pretty serious back surgery this past December. Oh. Part of my rehab is is moving, and I but I cycle, and so I like to cycle and long distance or well mid distance now. But I like to cycle. It's where I let go. I like riding along the river trail, mm-hmm. and my mind just goes. I don't have to worry about traffic. I just go into that other place. And then even when I'm riding on the street and I do that, I have the mirror. I've got all geared out and everything. <laughs> but it gives me a, a different kind of focus. I have to pay attention where I'm going. So I'm fully present, and that is a great stress reliever. It helps to get me in a different frame of mind. And it's also good physically, which feeds my mental health. So are you bringing your your – your music with you, your earbuds with no, you? Never, or, no, never, never. No, oh, that's a that's a full pop. No, definitely, that's so dangerous. Well, I would running, never. I'm running. Well, running, running. Well, even with running, I was more of a purist. I would. I ran just to run. I would. I would was racing. I did a couple marathons. I was really into it. But when I ride, I think it's one of the most unsafe things right. you can do is to put AirPods in. With with uh, with running, I it's a, it's a it's a mixed bag for me. I need to have. I need to have the, the the extra oomph, the stimulus that 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 the right song will give you, but also I like every once in a while just hit a hit the pause button yeah. and just be alone with your own thoughts. I think that's a huge thing in today's world. We were just constantly bombarded by so much stimulus that we don't we don't have those moments of boredom. Like yeah. running is boring. Let's yeah. let's be honest. We're just running. It wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. For even long for, distance <laughs> running is boring. No, it wasn't Could for me. Be. No, it never was. No, no, I like so even with the riding, I like riding hard, fast, pushing. It's part of my personality, but I drive. Remember, I'm a person recovering from addiction, so I still feed off the dopamine, endorphins, mm-hmm. and I, it's almost like I. That's what I get the pleasure from, and it's also just the joy of how it makes me feel, which is really what it's all about. The runner's high. Yeah, and that that's sense. what. And when I ride, I get that. I still get that from riding. So, whether I ride, but it's also like yoga, swimming. Even I like to walk too. I walk. Now walking, I do put the AirPods in. <laughs> I have to confess, I do put the AirPods in when I walk. Uh, but it's still about movement. And right. I learned something from uh, a couple people. My my late uh, mother-in-law who swam regularly until uh, she had her her diagnosis of ovarian cancer, and my my ninety-seven-year-old aunt who still moves who still is active you got to move and, which so feeds yeah it's so it feeds it feeds the body mind soul spirit all that Carl thank you so much for for joining us on Buffalo what's next and and for having this discussion with us once again where can we listen to mindful music WVFO 88.7 Saturdays at four o'clock and if uh, they it's want also to... it's also on the website it'll be on the website too if they can't catch the episode live at and, the end. and a podcast it will be it will be Anything else that that we should be aware of uh, with the Mental Health Advocates of Western New York or any other initiatives that you're working with? Yeah. If you want information, mhawny.org. You can call 716-886-1242 if you need information on counseling supports or any type of mental health resources. Give us a call. Carl Shallahorn, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Martin. This has been Buffalo What's Next. And you're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.